0: All right, welcome again to RUF, y'all. Uh, just as a, another reminder, um, we, we say this every week to try to, uh, A, if you're new, we want to introduce you to who we are and what we're about, and B, if uh, you've been here for a while, I want to remind you what we're about. I want to remind you of the things that we uh, strive to be. So welcome to RUF. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We're a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. Uh, what that means is we are here to build a group. Uh, we want to uh, have a group of people that know one another, that care for one another, uh, that um, experience life together uh, on campus. And so that's what we're doing. Um, We're learning to love God. You may be here tonight. uh, You know Jesus. You love Jesus. You are looking for a place to grow in your faith and to be encouraged. Uh, We think our gift is a great place to do that. Uh, We open up the Bible every week to look at what God says about himself, about what God says about us, and what he requires of us. And um, that's what we're doing. Um, if you're here and maybe you uh, were pretty strong in your faith at one point in your life, but you know college is hard, you've lost your way a little bit, you have some questions, some struggles, uh, we wanna be a place for you to honestly engage those questions and engage those struggles. Uh, and maybe you're here tonight and you are a complete skeptic, but you heard that Bryson made tater tot casserole and so you're here. Uh, and and if it wasn't for the casserole, you heard about Wrinkles uh, Oatmeal Chocolate Chip Cookies, which are also excellent if you haven't had one of those check them out afterwards. Uh, glad you're here, and I think that you will find something more satisfying than even the best uh, earthly food. Um, and then we say we're learning to love Carson Newman, uh, that we want to be present on campus. We want to be involved in things. We want to do things uh, for the good of our campus. So that's who we are, and that's what we're doing. Um, tonight we're looking at Psalm 8. Uh, psalm 8 is a praise psalm. And uh, uh, this, word, this word praise is, um, if you've been around like Christianity at all, uh, praise, worship, words like this—they get thrown around all the time. Like we love praise and worship. Like we just—you uh, know—when we, when we, uh, you know, things are going well, we just want to—we just want offer up a praise, right? We just offer up a little praise, you know, thanks, you know, whatever. So that's that's how we talk. Um, so what is praise? And uh, we make this distinction between praise and worship that I, I don't really think exists. Um, I think they are uh, two sides of the same coin. That worship, worship is what you do. When you find something that captures your imagination and you fixate on it. That all you can do is think about it and explore it in your mind. And and praise is simply what comes out of your mouth as that is happening. So there's not really a distinction there. Um, Like I said, two sides of the same coin. And that's not really anything other than trivia. So file that away in case we ever get a trivia night that's specifically about this one night at RUF. um, But Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. And this psalm is an invitation to reflect on who God is and acknowledge him as the king and the creator of everything. And David gives us a model for this. Uh, David does three things. He looks up, he looks in, and then he looks out. So if you want to follow along, take notes, whatever, those are going to be kind of the three points. David looks up, he looks in, and he looks out. Um, And this psalm is calling us to do the same. It's calling us to do these three things. And um, the, the first thing that we see, though, is that uh, the psalm begins with this phrase, um, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And, and talking about God's name is another thing that, like, in our weird little like, evangelical bubble that we live in, we love talking about God's name. Uh, there are tons of songs that talk about the name of God. Uh, what does that even mean? And I think what that means is uh, it, it, it includes God himself, You know, God, God, the person, God in Trinity and unity, all all the things that he is. But it also includes God's revelation to us. It's not just who he is, but it's the way that he's choosing to show himself. So that's kind of what that means. So David begins this psalm by looking up and considering creation. Look at what he says in verses one and three. He reflects on the majesty of God's name in all the earth. He sees God's glory in creation and he is in awe of the work of God's fingers. And these are the things that I think are important for us to take away here. The first thing is that we see David reflecting on creation and how reflecting on creation turns him back to thinking of the character of God. Um, this is not limited to this psalm, this particular idea. Uh, if you look at Psalm 19.1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says that God is evident in creation in such a way that we have to actively suppress that knowledge to deny God's existence and work. And fall on my head. Um, sorry. Um, and then Jesus tells people uh, the, he tells the Pharisees in the New Testament. He tells them that if they stay silent, the rocks are going to cry out. That somebody is going to worship God. And actually, creation is is ongoing, doing it all the time. This imagery of creation worshiping is rich in Scripture, and it's everywhere. And it's this idea. It all comes back to this: that all of creation points to a Creator. It points to one who put everything into place, made it, designed it, um, and, uh, and it's not here by accident. It's not here by chance. The second thing we see, though, is that God, uh, David, David sees that God places his glory above creation, and this is really important. Um, I think it, it God's Bible study, I told you I was going to try to figure out how to work uh, one of our favorite um, preacher clips quotes into a sermon. And so here we go. Uh, this is the time where if you're, like, if you're the kind of person who like comes to church, you're like, come on, preacher. I want you to be politically incorrect. You, know, you go, after, go after all those worldviews. You pick up the book and bless God. Well, here we go. This is what David is doing here. Michael Wilcox, a commentator, he points out that the Bible, the biblical world, just like ours, was pluralistic. It was awash with all sorts of different beliefs, In the view view of any correctly thinking person, all of them were valid, but none of them actually write in such a way as to make the rest wrong. Not so to the psalmist. The Lord, the God of Israel in the Bible, is not just our Lord, he says, but the name, the only name to be honored in all the earth and even above the heavens. Little Israel is right and the rest of the world is wrong. And I want you to see the exclusive claims that David is making in this psalm. Everything in our world tells us that we have to find our own truth. We have to forge our own path. We have to find whatever is inside of us that makes sense of who we are and uh, and then, and then live the most authentic version of that. But David is proclaiming to Israel, and again, to a world that does the same thing. Every nation had their own gods. They had their own rites of worship. But David is declaring to the rest of the world, and I think by extension to us today, that there is one designer and one creator. He is the one who gives his creation meaning and purpose. He is the one who defines it, not us. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the third thing that David does is he... David reflects on the scope of creation. Now you may have missed this, but if you look at verse three, David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, notice what David doesn't say. He doesn't say the work of your hands. He doesn't say the work of your arm. And and, and talking about the, the work of God's hands, the work of God's arm, like these are things in scripture that the writers of the Bible use to describe how God works. In uh, in the Ten Commandments, the the prologue to the Ten Commandments, God reminds his people that he was the one who, with a strong arm, delivered them from the house of Egypt, from the house of slavery. But think about that practically. When, when When you use your fingers to work on something, what are you working on? You're working on something small, you're working on something intricate, you're working on something that takes care and attention to detail. And I think that David is using this imagery, the imagery of God's fingers, to emphasize both the magnitude of God and the care that God has put into his creation. Think about it. What's the, what's the biggest thing in the world? What's the thing that, you have, that, that, that you've seen and it's just completely silenced you in awe? I love the episode of Parks and Rec where, um, where um, April, oh, God, I forgot her name. April and Andy go to the Grand Canyon. And they're looking at it, and April's just like, I want to make fun of it, but it's just too beautiful, I can't. Right? What's that thing for you? That when you stand next to it, when you see it, it just silences you. And what David is saying is that that thing, that thing that is so big, that is so grand, that it just completely stops you in your tracks and shuts you up, God designed that with the tips of his fingers. And there's a lot of implications to this, but um, Tim Keller is very helpful in in giving two. The first thing, the first one that he gives is that we can mine the depths of what it means that God is creator for eternity. And I believe that's going to be our glorious work in heaven. We're going to spend all of eternity mining the depths of who God is, how great he is, what it means that he is all powerful, all knowing, all everything else. But one of our problems, I think maybe our main problem, maybe all of our problems, come from refusing to acknowledge God as our creator. That we refuse to stop and see that he's the one who calls the shots. And if what David says here is true, that God is the creator of the universe, who sets his glory above creation, is this really the kind of God that you simply ask into your heart? Is this really the kind of God that you Uh, hope to come into your life to be some sort of consultant or assistant? Maybe like a magic eight ball to shake or a genie that is going to give you wishes or whatever. Is this, is this the kind of God you're really going to go to to simply look for affirmation to do whatever you decided you wanted to do in the first place? No. And this vision of God that David lays out in Psalm eight is 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 the complete opposite of that that this is if this is if he is who he says he is and he is that he is the king of everything and he is the very center of our lives and we orient our lives around him and we build our lives around him but the second thing that i think that we see that's really important is that god god actually god actually is an artist And there's a uh, one of my favorite movies growing up um, was the movie Men in Black, uh, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, and um, and uh, this was before you know Will Smith's life kind of happened. Um, But but, uh, the closing scene of that movie is amazing. Um, the the whole The whole whole premise of the movie is that you know there are aliens that live among us, and uh, the Men in Black are this secret government organization that kind of keeps track of them and. Uh, knows who's coming and going, all these kinds of things. And of course, one of them tries to take over the world and all this stuff. But um, there's this amazing scene at the end of the movie where um, Will Smith and his new partner are are walking out of the building and they get in their car and then all of a sudden the camera starts to zoom out. And you see like all the street and you see like all of New York City and then all of New York State and then eventually it zooms out on the world and then you see all of our galaxy and, and it keeps zooming out until you realize that each galaxy is actually inside of a marble that these giant aliens are like playing games with. And then they just kind of like put them in a bag and, and walk away. And, and, it's, and it's cool because it's cool because it does give you this scope of, of, of how small that we are and how small that we are in the grand scheme of everything else. But I think, I think what's beautiful about Psalm 8 is that while that image is helpful, God is not an indifferent being just playing games with his creation, but he is an artist who has written his name all over it. We see it everywhere. I love how C.S. Lewis describes the creation of Narnia in the Magician's Nephew. That Diggory actually hears a song and he realizes that Aslan is singing creation into existence. And I think that really captures the soul of Genesis 1 and 2. Because Genesis 1 and 2 are a creation song. They're poetry. They're these beautiful uh, uh, songs of the way that God creates Everything. And that's important because every other ancient religion, every other ancient religion, their creation story was born out of a battle that the gods fought and creation just kind of happened. But the Christian story, the God of Israel created everything with the word of his mouth and he did it with a song. And that's beautiful. But the thing further about that is that good art reflects the character of the artist. Um, and as I, I was thinking about this, and I, I've got this one illustration that I always use for this, so I'm not going to use it. If you want to hear it, go back on the podcast and listen to one of the Romans 1 sermons. So I'm going to use a different one. Um, but you may be familiar, maybe you're not because it's old and I'm old, uh, but you may be familiar with the song Closing Time by the band Semisonic, right? Um, this song is, I think it's an amazing song. It came out when I was in like eighth grade, and it was like heavy, and you could jump around and like scream it. But but if you listen to the song, it sounds like it sounds like it's a night just about like a night out at the bar with friends, uh, because that's basically what it's what it's meant to sound like. Um, it's written as if it's last call at the bar and people are shuffling about, ready to head on to wherever the night takes them next. But several years after the song came out, the uh, the lead singer, the guy who wrote the song, uh, on stage broke it down line by line, and he and he told the story. He said he said I wrote this song. Because I was trying to figure out how to write a song about having my first child. And he was like, I, I didn't want to write like a, he called it a Hello Junior song. Um, he said, I didn't want to write a Hello Junior song and then make the rest of my band sing about a kid that wasn't theirs. So he said, I, I, I hit it within this song closing time. And so he goes through every line of the song closing time and talks about how that is a parallel to the birth of his son. And then he he mentions that he includes the line, finish your whiskey or beer, just as a way to throw people off, right? Um, But but it's actually a song about the birth of his first child. And now I can't hear that song any differently. That now, instead of hearing a song uh, describing what for years sounded like just kind of a, a party night out, reflects the tenderness and care of a father becoming a father for the first time. That's what good art does, that it bears the mark of the creator. And that's what creation does. That all creation bears the mark of our loving Father. And so my question for you, for this first point, is this. what is creation, or what does your view of creation, reflect about God? Is it something that is beautiful, that is to be enjoyed? Is it something that is all-powerful, and is to be worshipped? Is it something that is evil, that is to be avoided? And one of those is actually the right answer. It's the one about being beautiful and being enjoyed. But consider that. Consider your view of creation. Consider what creation tells you. And ask why it declares anything other than the glory of God if it does. But then David looks in. He's he's reflected on God and his work. And that leads him to a really important question. And it's a question that should probably give us all some pause. David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? Think about that. Who are we? Who are we that God would be mindful of us? Who are we that God would know our names? See, David's already established our insignificance and scope. He's marveling at the work of God's fingers and things that are massive. And coming into the presence of true glory, of true majesty, it makes us feel small. And it makes us feel insignificant. And uh, I just talked about thinking about that thing uh, that you've stood next to or you've seen that's made you feel very small and insignificant. And I had a moment like that in a restaurant in New Orleans about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Uh, my dad and I were sitting there. We were eating. We were in town. We were, we were there for the Final Four. And uh, and so, like, there's kind of all these big, like, famous people walk, famous athletes walking around and stuff. And so we're sitting there eating. and this And this dude walks in who just like, complete, he like completely blocks out an entire window. And I'm looking, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like, that's David Robinson. And y'all might not know who David Robinson is. He's been retired for a long time. Uh, but David Robinson was the center for the San Antonio Spurs for a really long time. Uh, he is 7'1", 250. So, so I just, just by virtue of him being huge, I felt very small. I felt very insignificant. But beyond his physical size, this man won two NBA titles. He won an MVP. He was a 10-time All-Star. He was a defensive player of the year. He was four-time NBA All-Defense. He was a scoring champion, a leading rebounder, a blocks leader. He was the 1990 Rookie of the Year, and he had his jersey retired by the Spurs. And also, he won multiple gold medals for Team USA Basketball. So, glory-wise, I felt pretty insignificant as well. All I could do was, was, I was like, hey, man, I had your poster on my wall as a kid. Because I did. That was all I could say to him. And he shook my hand. He's like, oh, thank you. shook my hand. And his hand came up to here. And I'm not a small person. Like, I felt insignificant. I felt small. And don't we all have those moments where we feel like our achievements don't measure up? We feel like our, 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 our physical gifting or what we've been able to do or whatever, we, we just don't feel like we measure up. And how much more, when we start to think about God, we start to think about who God is, how much more do we feel the same way compared to him? And maybe you guys aren't tempted to think of the world in the atheistic sense where there is no God and the universe is just, as Bertrand Russell says, a foundation of unyielding despair. Right? I don't know that that's necessarily, um, I mean, I know it exists in this campus, but I know it's not like the prevailing thought. Maybe you don't believe that, but maybe you believe that God doesn't care because God's big and important, and He has other things to worry about besides besides you and your petty stuff. Maybe you believe that God doesn't care because, like, whatever it is that you've done, your sin has just made you too far gone, and God could never be mindful of someone who has done whatever it is that you've done. But remember who wrote this psalm? I'm not exactly sure when it was written. Or on what occasion but one commenter places this psalm at the end of David's life after David has risen to the throne after David has uh, committed adultery with his best friend's wife and had his best friend killed after he's had a blood feud with his son Absalom where he lost the throne for a time and after he's restored to it and think about think about saying these words after all that that god I've been through all that and you still know who I am You still care about me. You still love me. David is kind of wrecked by this question, who am I that you are mindful of me? Then in verses five through eight, David gives us an answer. Why is God mindful of us? God is mindful of us because he's mindful of us. He just is. That's what he does. Being mindful of us is not this just occasional like thinking about us or being vaguely aware, right? Like you know, sometimes you'll see somebody you have seen the morning. oh man, I was just thinking about you. You literally weren't. Like maybe you were like six months ago and just you, you, we all it's a thing we all say. We know we do that. Or maybe I'm the only person that does that, and I just majorly out of myself and I'm very sorry. Um because I'm thinking about all of you all the time, I promise. Um no, in scripture. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about being mindful, it means that it has a compassionately purposeful ring since God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. So in the Bible, when you read about God thinking of us or God remembering us, that's actually God's active moving towards us, knowing who we are, caring about who we are. And he does that simply because that's who he is. That God has made man as the crown of his creation. It is only man who bears the image of God. It is only man who even has the capability to contemplate these questions. If y'all have been to my house, you know Bo and Quinn. They're wonderful. They're great dogs. But at no point have they ever stopped and said, Man, have you ever contemplated how beautiful the stars are? No, because they're dogs and they can't. But we can That God has given that to us that we can do that. And so this God, this creator, this artist has given man purpose and meaning and responsibility. And this is the engine that drives everything. It's the engine that drives everything about who we are and what we do. And again, there's a couple things to take away from this. The, the first thing is dignity, human dignity. We talk about this idea of dignity a lot. Um, if you walk around campus... You won't walk about five feet without seeing, in all caps, you matter, right? I don't know what it's an advertisement for. I think it's counseling services, but I'm not really sure. sure. But, 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 but you will be told because of these, I guess, orange and blue, like you matter. Like I have a coffee mug that says you matter from a, like a feel-good Friday thing, right? You matter. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. But y'all, like we are all we are all longing to matter. we are all longing to be important, we are longing to be significant, and dignity is the state or uh, the, sta- the, uh, the the state of being worthy of honor or respect don't we all want that? like don't we all want people to talk about us like we are valuable and not insignificant pieces of trash that just sort of wound up here and we're destined to suffer through life meaninglessly and then just like fade away. I mean, don't, don't you want that? Yes, of course we do. But where does it come from? Where does meaning come from? And the conversation is always happening. Some life is worthy of living. Some life isn't things like assisted suicide and abortion seek to determine which lives are worthy of even living Things like racism and sexism seek to determine which lives are worthy of honor. And those are just the tips of the iceberg. That that there are conversations going on all the time. Who matters? Who's worthy of respect? Who deserves to live? Who doesn't? And maybe that dignity comes from within. right? This is my truth. This is my identity. And I deserve dignity because I am living as authentically as I can. And for you to disagree is to deny me of that and is therefore literal violence. Or maybe dignity comes from without. That these are my accomplishments. These are the things that I've done. These are my trophies. And I demand your honor and respect because you don't have these same trophies. But then what happens when those things start to fail? What happens when you can't be you authentically enough? What happens when someone achieves something bigger or better? I want to say it was 2016 when Drake and Kanye got into a rap battle about who had the bigger swimming pool. That's a thing, it happened. What happens when somebody comes along and does something better than what you've done? Or worse, what happens when you fail? It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else, it has to do with your own failures. David says, no, there's a better better way. David is saying that humans have dignity because they bear the image of God. Humans have dignity because God has placed them a little lower than the heavenly beings. And actually, um, the the better translation of that might be to say that God has placed them a little lower than God himself. Think about that. That that's who God says that you are, that he is the creator, and you and I get to enjoy that creation. That is the full scope of this psalm. But the second thing is that this should shape the way that we have relationships with other people. Because here's the thing. If you have dignity and if you matter, then guess what? So does everybody else. Everybody else bears the same dignity and matters the same way that you do. This is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. He says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Here's what this means. You have no excuse, you have no right to treat another person with this thing. You can disagree with them. You can have conflict with them. Obviously, life happens, right? Normal things happen, and and, and we have to uh, rub up against each other sometimes. But David's words here completely forbid us from holding grudges, from withholding forgiveness, from seeing people primarily as enemies or treating them as anything less than the image bearers of living God. That you have no right to do that. This is not saying that, that, that if we all just think about uh, each other as being bearing the image of God, that relationships are going to be easy and fun and All of a sudden, No, they're going to be hard. It's just, this doesn't mean that you need to allow other people to just walk all over you because, well, they're made in the image of God, so whatever. No. But it does mean that our posture towards others, even in conflict, even in hard things, it has to be one of honor and respect because of who God has made his creation to be. And so as you reflect on God, what he's done, and who he said that you are, and by extension, others are, where are the places that you try to find your dignity? Where are the places that you try to find your meaning and and that you matter? What are the things that you do to either affirm or withhold that dignity from other people? What are the grudges that you hold? What's the forgiveness that you lack? What's the the trust that's irreparable? However you want to think about it. But then David looks out. David looks at the world around him. And uh, one of the things that I love about the Psalms, um, and indeed really the entire Bible, is that uh, it never, the Bible never imagines the world to be something other than what it is. Like if you read the Bible, you see a world that's like kind of a terrible place. And yet it's also beautiful. And I think the Psalms hold this intention really, really well. But this psalm, uh, even with the way that it glorifies God and it sees human dignity the way that it does, it also acknowledges that the world is a sinful and a fallen place. The psalmist acknowledges, David acknowledges that there are foes, there are enemies, and there are Avengers and not like the Captain America, Avengers Assemble type. See, we, we know this, right? We've, we, we've talked about the ways that our dignity is under assault and the world offers us even more ways to attack each other's dignity. And... Going back to what we talked about earlier, like what was, what was what happened today at Covenant Press? anything other than an assault on human dignity? To say that your life is not worthy of living. See, that's, that's life. But these things remind us that we have to look outside of ourselves for help. And so where do we find it? First thing is in verse 4. Uh, David asks, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In the uh, the King James Version, which is the only official book of the Bible uh, translation of the Bible, um, I say that sarcastically. I, I don't read whatever translation you want, um, but the King James Version translate the word "care" as "visit." In other words, um, who is the Son of Man that you visit him? And when I was growing up, um, we would do this thing where we would like go to somebody's house and we would just visit for a while, and, and that that meant you just like hung out. You just sat there and like ate food or like talked about life or like watched TV. Like you just, I don't know. You're just visiting. I don't know. Um, But the point was that you were present with each other. You were together. You were doing life together. I hate the phrase doing life. I'm so sorry. I just said it, (laughs) but, but, but you, you were experiencing these things together. So the question might be, who is the son of man that you seek him out to know him and to be present with him? David is saying that God seeks us out to be present with us, to know us. So God is big and he's powerful and he's a creator and he's an artist and he visits his people. He comes to be with them. And the second thing is that in verse two, David says that out of the mouth of babies and infants, he has established strength. And generally speaking, this applies to Uh, the typical pattern of scripture that God uses the weak to shame the strong. He does it over and over and over again. But I think it's fitting that this Sunday is Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the Sunday that we, um, on the church calendar where uh, Jesus makes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, going to the cross. And did you know that as Jesus is doing this, he quotes Psalm eight that, um, Um, Matthew 21 tells the story that Jesus is in the temple and all these kids run into the temple and they start shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, praise you, son of David. Praise you, Jesus. And the priests and the scribes went to them and says, Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Shut them up. Make them be quiet. And Jesus quotes this verse. He says that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, God has prepared praise. That Jesus is saying, no, 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 you guys with all of your religious knowledge, you guys with all of your culture and all the things that you have, you're missing the point. And these kids, these children, are the ones who are sending their praises to the right place. And so to wrap it all up, David David almost certainly didn't know how God was going to silence the scoffers or how God was going to shame the strong with the weak. He just knew that God would do those things. And the story of Palm Sunday points us to that because it was through death, the ultimate weakness, the ultimate shame. It was through death that Christ defeated death. It was through the shame of being beaten and stripped naked and exposed on a cross that he defeated shame. By being born an infant, he brought kings to their end. That that the stories of Jesus' birth are just just crazy. That these kings just hear about this baby that was born and they start to freak out. Because they know that their reigns are now being threatened. And when we consider this psalm in light of the cross, we consider this psalm in light of the things that we know that Christ has done. What other response do we have than to join in with David in verse 9 to say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, your name is majestic, it is mighty, it is powerful. Mm Uh, It is the only name by which we uh, can even hope to be saved. And yet it is the name that you have promised us that does save us. So Lord, for those of us here tonight that uh, maybe we've never believed this, maybe we've never stopped to really take stock of of who you are and how you work and how you love us, God, would, would tonight be the night that we would consider you, that we would consider ourselves and that we would consider that we need you to be our help to be our Savior. Lord, maybe for those of us that have believed this for a long time or um, however long it's been, uh, Lord, would you remind us of this? Would you encourage us to look up, to look in and to look out, to see you for who you are, to see ourselves for who you've said that we are, and to see our world as you see it. Lord Jesus, would you do these things? It's in your name we pray. Amen.